0: Hello, this is Into the Greenwood, and I'm Cathy, and today we're going to be looking at the Water Horse of Barra, which is an update, a new variant, on the Kelpie and the Water Bowl, which we looked at a couple of episodes ago. We use this to discuss, in a way, what really constitutes folklore.
1: Yeah. We just have a general discussion about how folklore works and what we think um, it can kind of be defined as um, just in our own, our own opinions and our own own thoughts. (laughs) We hope you enjoy. So, this week's story is going to be a little different because we've just paraphrased it for reasons that will become clear. Um, so, I'm just going to go right into it. So, this is the water horse um, of Barra, and it's a story about a water horse living on the Isle of Barra, naturally. Um, and so, it's a Kelpie water horse type creature, and it's described as being good natured and never causing anyone harm. And he supposedly gets on well with the fairies and the humans alike. Which I find a bit saccharine, but I'm not. Kidding. <laughs> um, so the the story mentions that the fairies are disappearing, and as people no longer like because people no longer believe in the fairies, they they're disappearing. Um, and because of this, the kelpie gets lonely and decides that he needs a wife, and envisions building a chimney in his home at the bottom of the loch for his wife, which is quite sweet. So then, yeah, quite sweet. A wee chimney so he travels the island looking for an appropriate girl and he judges them all really harshly on their appearances um, because they're too fat or they're too thin or they're too ugly or like all of this stuff and he doesn't really consider what they think of him and then at last he finds who he thinks is the perfect girl and he approaches her in horse form and when she touches him her hand sticks to his skin and then he tells her that he's chosen her to be his wife, and he's going to take her to the bottom of a loch, and they're going to live there. Um, and she doesn't like the sound of that, so she convinces him to sit with her for a while, and she finishes off her knitting, and he changes into the form of a young man and falls asleep in the heather. So she thinks he's handsome, but he does. But she doesn't want to spend the rest of her life at the bottom of a loch, so she takes a halter from a cow on the cow's instruction (laughs) and places it over the horse's head and when he wakes up and transforms into a horse again he's like under her power because she's placed a bridle on him so she tells him that he has a lesson to learn and she says quote it may have been alright to carry off a girl and marry her when you first came to live in the loch but things have changed a great deal since those days (laughs) (laughs) it may have been (laughs) all we have to say about that was was it ever okay (laughs) was it ever alright honestly I Um,
0: have doubts
1: (laughs) so then she puts the horse to work on her father's farm and then she goes to visit the island wise man who tells her to return to him when a cuckoo sings over Barra so she goes back to the farm And her father tells her that he wants to sell the horse after seven years. And the text states that the girl doesn't want this to happen. Um, So after each day, she visits the horse and grooms and brushes him and tells him about the work that's been done on the farm. And she sings him songs and just hangs out. Um, And it says, the water horse would listen attentively and stare at her with brown eyes, which little by little grew less cold and less selfish. So then a year and a day after she captured the water horse she hears a cuckoo cry and so she returns to the wise man who tells her to remove the kelpie's harness. And then the kelpie stands before them a young man again and the wise man asks the kelpie what he has to say. And the kelpie says, A year and a day ago I wished to carry off this girl and make her my wife. Since then she has talked to to me of her father's farm and I myself have worked long hours there. I have learned how very different her life is from mine, and now I know that never could she be happy in my home at the bottom of the loch. So he says that he regrets not leaving the the mortal world with the fairies to go to Tirnanog, and the wise man gives him the option to go to Tirnanog, or to drink a potion and become a mortal man. The water horse asks the girl if she would marry him if he became a man. She says that she will. So he takes the potion and he wakes with no memory of being a horse, and they lived happily ever after and the narrator notes that their descendants might still be alive today. So that's the Water Horse of Barra. I think it was called. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> so the reason we decided to paraphrase the story instead of writing our own version is because there's really only like one version of this story and it first appears published um, in the book Folktales of Murren Mountain by English author Winifred Finlay in 1969, and she gives no sources. Mm-hmm. So the question comes up, is this folklore?
0: Yeah, and that's really what we wanted to talk about today, uh, kind of how you end up with retellings and how much does the time that the retelling was made affect the validity of it because, I mean, for example, the Grimm brothers, they published Mm -hmm. several different editions of their folktales and each one was considerably different because Mm -hmm. they ended up sanitizing the tales and adding to them and removing bits as they became more popular with the fairly newly literate middle-class. Mm-hmm. We still treat those as folktales and see them as having worth and being culturally interesting. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're opening up this question with a very, very recent retelling.
1: Yeah. So just to kind of give us some kind of like foundation, the definition of folklore um, is... The traditional beliefs, customs, and stories of of a community passed through the generations by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And I don't think all of that necessarily needs to apply to something to make it folklore. But it's kind of a good foundation to just kind of be like, what are we, what are we like considering here?
0: There's also there's so many other definitions of folklore that you can use. Um, So one of the things that Wikipedia notes uh, actually is that it's continuously created and transmitted and Mm. in any group it can be used to differentiate between us and them because it's about Mm. knowledge and traditions.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, as a, a side note, a tangent,
1: are memes folklore? I, don't I think, you know, there's actually, um, there is an episode of the Folklore Podcast, um, not this one, like the Folklore Podcast, mm-hmm. with Mark Norman talking about Bernie Sanders' mittens, um, mm. which I might recommend people check out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it it is something that is up for debate, our memes folklore, and... Like, they have a lot of the sort of key markers.
0: Yes, they really do.
1: They really do. Um, One thing that makes me quite sad is that, and I don't think this is, like, unique to memes, I think it's just, like, the way things are now, is that it's unlikely that they're going to be passed through generations it's unlikely that you know if you're off the internet for a month you'll miss a whole meme and it's gone you're never gonna see it yes um it's not being passed around over time yes it is created Mm -hmm. by a community
0: they develop and then die away so quickly that it's not like they leave any really long lasting effects in the way that the yeah. general concept of a Cinderella story can be traced back thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. It's probably not going to get to the point where one of the lines from a vine is still being cited in textbooks and things hundreds yeah. of years from now. Maybe. Exactly. Maybe I'm incorrect. Like, but it feels there's, unlikely.
1: There's definitely, you know, some, some things that have entered, like language, like words that were originally mm. memes have entered language that sort of thing but they also like at that point i don't know if we can carry on considering it a kind of folklore because it's kind of lost the lore it's just a word now yes it
0: because another key part of folk tales and folklore is that they have something to teach you they're carrying some piece of history some moral some guidance for the way you're supposed to live your life generally yeah and i don't think that that's something that we have in some of the modern folklore that we have so memes especially but also urban folklore is maybe a bit more on the boundaries um, and does still have a moralistic aspect to it i think you could argue
1: um. Yeah, yeah. And it could like it could just be the, the case that modern folklore just is going to be very short-lived because of just the huge amount of information that we all have access to mm-hmm. all the time. It doesn't really promote longevity. <laughs> yes. And then there's also this
0: cultural, homogeneity going Mm on um I notice it more and more every year that in the UK I have to hear more about Thanksgiving and the more English people start doing things on Thanksgiving yeah I just kind of scream a little bit inside um because this is nothing to do with us and that's setting aside all of the politics of whether this should actually even be celebrated Yes. That aside, it absolutely shouldn't be being celebrated yeah. and talked about in England and the UK and Europe. It's nothing yeah. to do with us, really.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, I was I was listening to a podcast this week, not even a folklore podcast mm. at all, but by like the two hosts are both English, and they were talking about like, uh, like how weird they find it. They feel like within within their lifetimes will start celebrating thanksgiving in the uk mm. and just expressing just general annoyance and discomfort with it basically
0: <laughs> yes um and maybe this feels like a very big tangent from the water horse of barra yeah. but um i think it's an important piece of context for how malleable are. Or- culture is and how quickly things can feed in and become ubiquitous i think in a way that is unique for our generation with the huge globalization of the internet yeah and i think as we'll probably get into this this retelling is very different from the traditional variants of folktales that we have talked about before, because it's from the 60s, it's early feminism, it's a lot of post-war changes. There are a lot of cultural things happening here that are quite recent in terms of the history of human development and that you can see have directed the angle of the retelling of this folktale.
1: Yeah. Um so if we focus back onto the story now like I mentioned this kind of when I was paraphrasing <laughs> one of like the immediate things that jumped out at me as feeling very non-traditional and um even a bit a bit sanitized was the kelpie being described as good-natured and never causing Mm -hmm. anyone harm and getting on well with fairies and humans um and that is very different yeah to what we hear
0: yes i think that's probably part of the reason even that he's called water horse instead of kelpie um the the purpose of a kelpie is that it's a demon horse that's going to murder you in the water you know yeah. it's really it's clear it's probably going to eat you especially yeah. if you're a woman or a child if you're like, a man we don't know it just kills you
1: it's by like it's by definition just evil mm-hmm. <laughs> and even if you know like it's it's hard to say like when christianity comes into it but like Certainly at this point, um, the culture's been Christian for a while, and at that point, the Kelpie's, like, literally a demon. <laughs> like... Yes, very,
0: <laughs> very heavily associated with fallen angels, even just, yeah, straight-up yeah. demons. So especially the idea of getting on well with the fairies and the humans. Yeah, Most folktales are pretty clear that you're in one group or the other. You yeah. don't really, uh, I mean, even Tamlin yesterday. Uh, yesterday, last episode, uh, yeah. he's a human trapped in the fairy world. He's not happy about it and is a prisoner. Uh, the, yeah. the cross-contamination, if you will, the crosstalk. Yeah. it's a bad thing. You're not supposed to be able to belong to both groups and you have to return to your original home that yeah. happens in every story where the fairies take somebody or somebody ends up in fairy world they come back usually slightly worse off sometimes not mm.
1: but yeah
0: it's not where you're not supposed to have good relationships with both worlds
1: no and there's definitely a kind of a general theme um I think in most stories where because of the way that they are you just can't have a good relationship with fairies because they're mean. <laughs> like- yeah. yeah.
0: You have to be a fairy and therefore understand what we all have to call their culture and yeah. morality <laughs> stances. And yeah. you can't do that if you aren't one of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then... The story, like, specifically mentions that the fairies are leaving. And mm-hmm. that is, that is, like, a traditional belief. But, like, in a lot of, it, it, I don't know quite how to describe it, but in this story, it's very deliberate and conscious. In a lot of stories, this notion that the fairies are leaving or getting weaker or they belong in Tir nog, in a lot of stories, that is almost like a sort of background everyone knows this but it's not relevant Mm. to this story
0: yes you have it it's why you use words like once upon a time you ground things in the history because the implication is this doesn't happen anymore because these fairies are harder to find and come across and that's why you won't meet them but trust me this happened to my great grandfather Um, yeah. There's that closeness and also distance, which, like you say, she makes very explicit in this retelling. Mm-hmm. He's lonely. The fairies are leaving. This is the inciting incident for him deciding yeah. that he needs companionship.
1: Yeah.
0: It just, yeah. It, it's a very different context and framing to any of the other Scottish tales that we've read
1: yeah and it's I like I did read that this author this is a theme that she particularly is interested in in a lot of her work this separating of the magical and the mundane and the magic leaving the world Um,
0: yes I read the same
1: yeah Which is quite um, Tolkien-esque as well. He liked that. Um, Yes.
0: I mean, it's really... It's a really interesting storyline, to be honest. I am quite a fan. Um, It has a a sense of nostalgia and sadness, but also adventure and the fact that life changes and you can't do anything about it you just have to accept it and find ways Mm -hmm. to navigate the change well it's a very good setting for a story and it's very it resonates for us psychologically as
1: well yeah it's definitely it's very compelling and it reminds me also of um like the kind of greek Ancient Greek notions of, like, a golden age, a silver age, an iron age, in Mm -hmm. which it's like the first age is the one, like, the golden age is when, like, there was lots of magic and, like, gods and humans, like, walked together and, like, interacted with each other all the time. And then, like, you have, like, the heroic age where, like, again, you've got this, and then you have the iron age where everything is rubbish and that's now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, I mean, we still, in much less romantic and poetic terms, we still talk about the good old days where nobody has ever determined when those were. Um, But we talk about them nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So it's kind of like that particular setting, um, like that backdrop, that being used as an inciting incident to me is quite like, You know, it's like, it's weird because it's a traditional belief. It's definitely inspired by traditional beliefs, but it's quite modern in the way that it's being used as Mm. like part of the plot, I suppose.
0: Yes, it's like you say, it's normally just this background circumstance that we all know and accept, but we aren't really dwelling on it.
1: Something I particularly noticed about um, the Kelpie saying he wants to build a chimney in his home for his wife. Mm-hmm. I think the author is directly kind of responding to or challenging um, the story of the Kelpie's chimney. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a version of that on the Folklore Scotland website for those who are interested. (laughs) Um, But in that story, basically, a woman and a Kelpie fall in love and they live together at the bottom of a loch. The Kelpie's wife grows unhappy because of the cold, so the Kelpie um, has a chimney built and then he lights a magical fire in the chimney to keep her warm under the loch, and then they're happy after that. Mm -hmm. So... I, I really felt like the author of The Water Horse of Barrow was kind of directly referencing that, if not Definitely. calling it out.
0: <laughs> the only reason I can think that she would be referencing that tale is because it's the only other tale that I've heard of where the Kelpie is nice. Yeah. And a woman falls in love with him of presumably her own volition. And he yeah. takes, I think it's a blacksmith
1: that he takes to build the fireplace or something yeah anyway some, like some kind of tradesman yes and
0: craftsman. he returns this tradesman to the earth after yeah. when his task is done it's yeah. very much the only tale where you're like hmm maybe kelpie is not necessarily an embodiment of evil all of the time uh,
1: yeah
0: and i don't I don't think I know of many variants of it, actually. It seems like yeah. there's that one version and that's it.
1: Yeah, so... you know, it reminds me, in a strange way, and I don't know if this is a good reference to make, how, like how many people will um, <laughs> know what I'm talking about, but okay, it reminds me of um, the relationship with Dracula and his wife in in the Castlevania animated series that's on Netflix (laughs) with like that's what it reminds that's the vibe
0: (laughs) you know I see it I like that
1: yeah because it's this vibe of like he's almost like the supernatural creature is kind of like with the Kelpie's chimney story I get this vibe where like he's not necessarily innately good Mm. But he would never hurt her and therefore doesn't want to hurt the things that she would care about. Yes. Like, it's this kind of, like, this is a monster, but the monster is capable of choosing not to be.
0: Yes, this monster can be humanised in some way. Um, Can become an appropriate partner for this young woman that we're giving all of the benefits of the doubt of the qualities of her beauty and goodness of heart and intellect and blah 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 blah. blah. yeah um it's just forgiven that she's the best woman in the world
1: yeah um and then in the water horse of barra although like on paper it's a similar idea it's very different in feeling because The problem isn't that the Kelpie's a monster. The problem is that the Kelpie is not a nice person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Which, I mean, in a way, sure. Teach him how to be a nice person before you marry him. That's not... Okay, well, setting aside the whole, why do women have to teach men things?
1: I mean, I think that's something that he should have paid a therapist to do.
0: Yeah. Um... (laughs) Um i'm sure we can we will come back to this i guess as we keep going through the tale um mm-hmm. but it's interesting in a way she doesn't have lots she has to work with him to redeem him for it's not like you say the dracula thing he's been eating humans we know that he's really pretty awful this Kelpie He's not eating humans. He's on some vegan diet that we don't know that Kelpies can do before now, but apparently that's how he lives his life. He's good-natured, but also really judgmental. So that's a weird contradiction. Yeah. Um,
1: I I think it says something about him eating raw fish, which, like... Oh, no, he he eats sushi. (laughs) (laughs) What a monster.
0: (laughs) Raw? Ugh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A beast. No, yeah, it's, (laughs) it just feels, it's a strange redemption story, because
1: Mm.
0: he doesn't really have loads to be redeemed for, Yeah, is is my point to circle back to.
1: Yeah, and, you know, like, we can also, like, says he gets on well with fairies and humans alike, and he's good natured and never causes anyone harm. Like, I would argue that being judgmental and selfish Mm. is enough for me to not get on with someone and consider them as causing harm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'm certainly not going to consider them good-natured. And even her text doesn't. If his eyes have to grow less cold and less selfish as time goes by... The best you could do if you wanted to argue that he had a secret heart of gold is essentially say that. He used to be good-natured but became more bitter as years went on and he got lonelier, which would make us a lot more sympathetic to him that I don't really know that he needs because, again, he Mm -hmm. hasn't really done that much that's awful for us to need to give him a lot of emotional leeway.
1: I don't know why like, we're told that he's good-natured and doesn't cause anyone harm mm. I, I don't, because it, it turns out he's not really but he is in the end
0: Yes, it's a weird contradiction
1: Yeah. It feels very much
0: like you're just you've called him a water horse slash Kelpie and now we have to super sanitise that aspect Yeah So much that he loses any kind of teeth
1: Yeah and like what irritates me as well about this story um, and I think see I think the thing is is because we're fairly sure that this story has one author um, and mm. doesn't represent um, some of, well at least some of the things in it don't represent culture and beliefs in the same way that other folklore does um maybe i'm a bit more critical of some of it but (laughs) what irritates me is that he goes around judging um all these women till he finds the like scare quotes perfect girl Mm. but in the end he still ends up with the perfect girl like yeah isn't he supposed to like be taught to like, you know? Isn't he taught to look past that and, you know, end up with someone who's well suited to him and a great person? But he misjudged to begin with. I don't know.
0: That would feel much more like a true feminist retelling, if you like.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Obviously, as we mentioned, this is from the '60s, so. As with any ideology, feminism has undergone changes and whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, so he looks at the women and thinks that one's too fat and she's too ugly and whatever. Yeah. And the text has this air of like, well, that's just not a nice thing to say, but he's not exactly wrong. And yeah. Yeah. Sure, we all find ourselves judging fairly subconsciously and just as a knee-jerk way, but I don't know. It's just a strange, I think, the way you would want to get that moral across now. Yeah. Yeah, it would be someone that he discounts and then he is in some kind of distress and she helps him and he's he does the whole, oh, yeah, I misjudged you because I'm terrible and myopic and I'm going to be better than that
1: yeah so this story hits a weird place for me because it's kind of it's trying to be a bit more moralistic and kind of improve on perceived wrongs that other folklore has wrought (laughs) um but for me not doing it very well um And it's just hitting a very, a very strange place for me. (laughs) Yes,
0: it's the whole um, sweet and sour grapes thing that I feel whenever I watch a 90s film. And, you know, the woman has to have a makeover no matter what. And it really... It destroys the entire moral of you should love people for who they are and they're inside. But only if they put the effort into being hot. I mean, okay, well, hmm. I think you've just destroyed your own argument here.
1: I mean, I haven't read this author's other work, but I want to give the benefit of the doubt and assume that there is like, been a lot of thought gone into various aspects of this and um, the author seems to be by her body of work like very well uh, read and very very published um, but I think some things some things I'm just not going to pay attention to because from a folklore side less interested if it's one person's idea than if it's like... Mm, truly part of the folklore so I feel like there's some things we're going to skim over and miss and I don't want it to come across like I'm being really mean but some of the cooler things in here maybe some of the nicer things some of the like skillful things just happen to be like not that relevant to this discussion I suppose She really she decides that he's handsome. And because of that, she does all of this.
0: <laughs> Honestly, like <laughs> I I would like to just dig into her psychology considerably more. She's like yeah. he's handsome. He's magic. I can make him a better person. I can fix him. This is fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> babe. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Uh, it's it's like the the flip side of what we were just talking about with like well you know he's bad for judging all these people but it's okay if he judges them as long as he judges her to be pretty that's fine and it's okay that she judges him on first appearance because she judges him to be handsome so that's fine
0: and um, it's just their whole uh interaction in the way that they talk with each other is very strange. He gives her a bunch of compliments and then says, I've decided to make you my wife. And she just says, hmm, how kind of you. I mean, I know in the text, to be fair, she does that because she thinks, oh, he's a magical water horse. I need to be smart and not irritate him and whatever. Yeah. So it makes sense that she decides to be polite. But it's again... Weird. It's like we're supposed to be finding this charming, interesting, flirtatious. He has just said he wants to kidnap her, essentially. Irrelevant of how she feels about it, because she's pretty enough for him.
1: It just feels a bit too close to home, you know, being in a situation where Mm. a man that you don't like and are maybe a bit scared of is complimenting you. And you can't really do anything about that because like you you just have to keep him passive because you know it's your fault if he blows up or you provoke him mm-hmm. even though he's the one um, being the aggressor here. Um, and just having to use passivity and kindness as a defense because if you use anything else you're not going to win because he's bigger and stronger and scarier and a magical water horse.
0: (laughs) Yes, and that aspect of it is then very much the same as what happens in the version that we looked at a few episodes ago. um, Yeah. Where when she convinces him to lie down and go to sleep, there's a line that can be read as them, well, hmm as there being a sexual encounter of incredibly grey consent. um, If you interpret it like that, you don't have to, but it's worth noting. Um, This version, he does very much just fall asleep. There's no, he's not falling asleep in her lap. She's not playing with his hair. We get rid of anything that could imply that. Yeah, um, but the encounter is still functionally the same.
1: Yeah, and in the
0: other one, the guy is a villain, and is killed by the water Exactly. Ball. In this one, yeah,
1: exactly, there's
0: a talking cow that helps her out, but otherwise everything's fine, and he's good enough to marry.
1: I mean, yeah. is he? I don't yeah. know. You know, it's with. With the Kelpie and the Waterbill story that we looked at, it's, it's the same encounter. He's the villain. And I'm like, it just makes you feel like, well, yeah, he is a bad guy. So this is an uncomfortable encounter. Mm. In this version, it's like, this is an uncomfortable encounter, but we're supposed to be on board with this romance? Mm-hmm. No, I don't like it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's plenty to be said for fiction diving into things that are challenging and uncomfortable, and helping you work through emotions, look at things in different perspectives, learn about yourself and the world. Blah blah. Um, I think we expect stories nowadays to do that in a much more three D way than older folk tales where yeah. you really have the actions instead of the thoughts of the characters to guide you and yeah. this story is weirdly in the middle of that because we get some looks yeah. into their minds but
1: yeah
0: the, there's still a story like the plot is still coming first the characters haven't influenced the plot there's the plot and then the characters yeah. are just put into it is how it feels to me you know, yeah, they're going to end up together. So she has to find him handsome and interesting enough to be fine with this weird encounter. And yeah. he has to be good natured, but also do this very possessive thing, have these very possessive perspectives and entitled viewpoints but also be yeah. happy to work for a year and a day in her father's farm and not be proud or angry that he was functionally enslaved yeah. and that just has to be enough to redeem him. I don't know. It's, it's a strange story the longer I think about it, the more I'm like this either needs to be a lot longer and get into everything properly or a lot shorter yeah. and fairly different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like we have a bit about her putting a bridle on him, mm-hmm. which is an inversion of the traditional Kelpie's bridle, where the Kelpie already has a, bri- a bridle and you steal it from the Kelpie in order to control them. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think very deeply about this, I just made a mental note of it and moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't I haven't really thought about what we're trying to do with that other than like fun inversion and nod to the kelpies bridal folklore.
0: The aim of this story is just to invert a few things, which is fine. Yeah. You know, that's a fairly normal way to begin a retelling. But to say that we're inverting things and trying to deconstruct and retell, we still end up very much with something that doesn't feel coherent internally yeah you know and that's fine in a folktale because you presume that there are a lot of variants going on and things have been lost in translation and it might make more sense in a different version than you're currently hearing but like you say this is one author
1: it's just easier to be a lot more critical of it because there, there is, a, we can put a name to the guiding hand that was supposed to put all this into order. Yes. I don't know why. Maybe because we've looked at stories with the Kalyak and that sort of thing. But for some reason, there being a wise man instead of a wise woman was weird to me.
0: Especially that in the other variant, it is a wise woman who's like, that's a fairy cow. It will come in handy. (laughs) Treat it well. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's a wise woman and even in stories like Rashi Coats, there's the hen wife. Yeah. Um, And then we lose the kind of younger woman going to older women sort of
0: Yeah. Because we now
1: have Symmetry and...
0: three men and one girl yeah. in the tale, essentially. Yeah. Um, and it just, like you say, it's strange. You, An island wise man feels weird. The wise wo- person that's a hermit tends to be a woman. The wise man tends to yeah. be in the court.
1: Yeah. And you can kind of see, like, like it makes me think of... So you kind of, in Germanic traditions, you sort of get this recurring Odin figure of the wise man wanderer. Um, but I think um, in Scottish traditions, the Odin equivalent is the Kaliak and, mm, yeah. and the Hag goddess. And it is a wandering old woman that you see um and that's the kind of archetype that is more common
0: yes it feels strange to have inverted that for yeah really very little reason
1: yeah just for fun yeah um i don't know i don't know if i find it very fun i'm just like oh that's weird okay <laughs> <laughs> yes I did sort of feel like there was a lot of strange odds and ends in this story that were almost irrelevant. Like she um she gets help from I guess if you talk about the cuckoo cry, you could say she gets help from animals three times. Yes. But the cuckoo like so there's that. That's like a rule of three. Two of the animals, she like speaks to them. Um she brings gifts to the wise man twice.
0: Twice, yeah. It would be nicer um, if it was three times.
1: I don't know. It it's there's some things that feel like they're just they're just in there for the sake of it. Like when her her dad says he's gonna um, sell the horse after seven years. I'm like, okay, okay. So seven is the kind of the magic number we're working with. It's the like sort of cycle that we're paying attention to in this story. Mm-hmm. But then that doesn't happen at all. Yeah, in a, a day, in a, a day, we resolve it.
0: Yeah, and why would the dad want to sell the horse? This is the world's best horse. It does the work of yeah. several horses. I can't remember how many. Um, the text says, you wouldn't yeah. bother to sell it. You would just keep using it.
1: You maybe breed it. You, like, yeah. Yeah, and I think the sort of inclusion of that is supposed to somehow put some kind of urgency and pressure. On the story, yeah, but you know it doesn't really change anything. It doesn't change what happens. Like, are we saying that if that hadn't happened, she wouldn't have gone to groom him and talk to him?
0: Seven years is no. a really long time as well. That's not how you create urgency. Yeah, seven days. Absolutely. With this Absolutely. is very urgent. <laughs> For how the tale is going to go, she has to visit the horse every night and sing and talk and whatever uh whether there's any urgency or no she she's decided to take him captive yeah of course she's going to go and check on him (laughs) it i don't know the whole thing is strange i also just don't like magical servitude
1: i no I can see why we think that he deserves it. But he and he's not even a monster in this version. <laughs> yeah, it's not. He's, he's just a bit of a not great person <laughs> and he's kind of within his rights to be like, that wasn't cool when you enslaved <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> um,
0: you enslaved <laughs> me for leave. a year and a day as a horse that may or may not be my normal shape that I enjoy being in for that long. You had no idea what the possible outcome of this if I would be trapped like this forever. And frankly, I don't like you very much, so I'm going <laughs> to go now. That would be fair enough. I think that that would yeah. feel like an acceptable emotional response to what he goes
1: through. <laughs> I think the notion of like drinking a potion and becoming a mortal man. It's not like I've read every folktale in the world. I don't know. Mm. But that one, to me, feels slightly more modern. Because... Because it's, like, very... You'll have a potion, and then you'll fall asleep, and then you'll wake up, and then mm. you're cured. In, like, ones like Tamlin, it's, like, Janet, you have to grab him at this exact moment. You yes. have to hold on to him. You have to throw him in a wet... Well, like, it's a lot more sort of... It has to be it
0: midnight. It has to be the right moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's about timing, and it's about, like, proving yourself, and absolutely like all that sort of things. But this is, like... Could this old man just go about turning kelpies and monsters into humans if he wanted to?
0: That's the thing. It's also. So again, with the with comparing this with Tamlin, the reason Janet can save him it's because he's a man originally. Yeah. She's not converting him from a fairy to a human, she's returning him to his natural state. Yeah. Is this this story? absolutely isn't trying to imply that all Kelpies were once men it's just doing that by accident and hasn't interrogated that at all yeah um and I think that's why you you never hear of a story like this the the Kelpie's chimney it that it's just a Kelpie and a human woman which makes absolutely no sense but we won't get into it
1: yeah and it's and it's extremely typical of folklore to be like, yeah, the kelpie and the human woman got married. Like, yeah, he he was like a horse when they met. Yeah, then ever after. I don't know why you have a problem with yeah, that, listener. What's
0: <laughs> the issue it's obviously going to work out well between them.
1: Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, but, yeah, folklore tends to care a lot more about the emotions and the underlying symbolism than it does about the practicalities of what's happening here.
0: Yeah, which is fine. I think it's charming. I think it's why we like to come back to them and why they crop up so often because there's just that unexplained magic that's happening in the background. Yeah. But if this was happening in a normal folk tale she would have to do something if you want to give him a potion she would have to gather the herbs yeah she would have to go to the end of the world to get the magic water whatever it was this would now be her quest because she's locked him into this situation and Yeah. yeah the wise man is just like it's fine i've done this free of charge we're ready to go. <laughs> Whenever you would like. I'm prepared. Well, Monsieur, you... who are you? <laughs> do you? Were you just desperate one day to turn a Kelpie back to a human just to see if you could do it? Who are mm-hmm. you? What are you doing? Yeah. Maybe you're the reason yeah. all of the fairies are disappearing, my dude. It's all your fault. You're turning them into humans. <laughs> yeah
1: you know it's cracked it we've cracked cracked it it. the The wise man is
0: actually evil um
1: yeah so like firstly we have no mention that he's ever talking back to her when she's talking Mm -hmm. to him for this year and a day so when she says she'll marry him it's still because when she saw him at the start of the story (laughs) he was handsome (laughs) i mean he has apologized for like the way he acted i guess but It's based on the fact he was handsome and he's now apologised for the mean thing he said a year ago.
0: (laughs) I just also have to say, in his position, right, somebody has enslaved you for a year and a day and then talk and sing at you incessantly when you're trying to sleep (laughs) after a day of hard work that this person has forced you to do? (laughs) (laughs) Leave me alone. Let me sleep. I don't care about you. You were mean to me, you know. It's, <laughs> I the the story is that he has to fall in love. But if this was extended, the, at least the first week, you would have a bit of a Beauty and the Beast thing, and he would not be yeah. keen to hear it from her and talk to her. And he would do he would be really lazy on the farm, and he wouldn't do the work. Yeah. And her dad would be like, maybe we will have to get rid of this horse because. I know you said he would do well, but he's not doing. And that's when yeah. she's like, hmm, maybe you can't just enslave people. I should check on him <laughs> yeah. and chat to him and work things out. And then slowly yeah. they would become friends. Like you say, he would have to be able to talk back. They would have to actually get to know each other. Yeah. For this to feel fulfilling, if. What you want from them is that these characters aren't archetypes anymore, and they're fully
1: individualized characters. And then on top of that, he wakes with no memory of being a water horse. Yeah. In which case, how does he like remember the lesson he's learned? Does she just have to lie to him for the rest of their lives?
0: Honestly, he just wakes up, and he's like, "Who are you? Who are you?" And she says, oh, well, we're going to get married tomorrow. It doesn't matter who I am. Uh, Yeah. Where where do we go from here? There's a huge second part of this tale. (laughs) He has no memory of anything? Yeah. Terrifying. He's just a fully grown man with nothing.
1: Yeah. And then we finish off with the kind of sort of wink to the audience Mm. that their descendants might still be alive today. Um and I think maybe that is about um cuz there are like there's certain families that sort of claim to be descended from selkies mm. um and that is like s- stories and like stories where a kind of marriage between a supernatural creature and a person occur there's kind of modern day Um, families that kind of have in their family lore that they Mm. are descended from that marriage and those stories can be quite dark there's always kind of an implication that um, one of the people involved doesn't want to be there Mm -hmm. so I feel like this this last bit is kind of about enjoying that as a an aspect of folklore but not liking that that doesn't come from a happy marriage Mm. and wanting it to
0: definitely and i think it's also it's probably also a nod to the fact that in some tales that we read uh some variants at least the ending is along the lines of and if they haven't died then they're still alive now um in the more fantastical ones it's that yeah same concept of trying to divorce it from any particular time uh, yeah. and help you feel like there's still magic, like this tale is still real in some form or other.
1: Is it folklore? Yeah. Um... I have some things about iterations of this story that have appeared since. Okay. Um, it's kind of hard to verify because I couldn't I couldn't find copies to read myself. Mm-hmm. Um so this is from so the author of the blog Writing in the Margins says that the story has since appeared as The Kelpie and the Girl in a book called The Celtic Breeze by Heather McNeil, and that was in two thousand one. And the Kelpie Who Fell in Love in a book called Mayo Folktales by Tony Locke in 2014. Um so I would like to be able to read those and kind of form my own opinions about whether it is the same story, but um I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm also like I'm also not sure about the credibility of those other authors as well i have no idea i find it strange that one of these is mayo folktales and the description of that book mayo folktales talks about it it's it's about the folklore and the stories from county mayo so if the author of that book has read the water horse of barra and adapted it for mayo folktales i find that very strange cuz either he's just lying and he, he thinks it's from Barra and he's decided to say that it's from Mayo. Or maybe, because I've not read the book, maybe that's not the point of the book. Maybe the point of the book is more about setting stories in Mayo. Um, but uh, it's strange. I wasn't sure. Yeah, there's uh, a limit
0: to how many books we can buy for this podcast and read and uh, analyse so yeah really all we can do is leave a question mark by these further iterations of it Um, because we haven't read them and we don't know
1: it could be that these are entirely separate stories Mm -hmm. inspired by different things but we don't know (laughs) (laughs) And if one or both of these are new versions of this story, that's when we kind of get into, is this in the process of becoming a piece of folklore? Mm -hmm. Because at this point, like, these two books that it may have appeared in, published in 2001 and 2014, in which case we are kind of passing that, like, through generations, it's yeah. it's getting into that kind of word of mouth, but I don't know word of text. Like it's not quite word of mouth. Mm. It's kind of passing into that more shared,
0: yeah, shared thing. It's becoming, even if only in a very niche area, it's becoming part of a cultural tapestry that then people adapt and build off and modify for their own purposes, which you could argue is a key part of folklore.
1: It's sort of, you know, how, like, I would definitely be tempted to say when first published, the story is not folklore. It's one person, it's one person's story, it's one person's view, like one person's view, and that person, I mean, I don't know, She it says that she's English, I don't know how much that means, like, because, you know, sometimes it'll say someone is of a certain nationality, but they've actually lived in another country for most of their life. Yes, sure. So maybe she's lived in Scotland for, like, longer, but um, say, it says that she's English, say that means that she has lived in England most of her life. She hasn't even really absorbed the culture of what growing up in Scotland or living in Scotland for a lot of her adult life would do. And in that case, again, it makes it harder to say, yeah, that's a piece of Scottish folklore. It even further removes it. Yes. Um, but again, I don't know what... I don't know what it means when it says that she's English. Yes. But,
0: yeah. Um, and you also... So as I mentioned a bit at the beginning, um, the Brothers Grimm sanitised the things that they collected after a while. Um, Walter Scott, in his collections of Scottish folktales, early folklorists... uh, had a very different idea of what they were supposed to be doing than we would talk about. We think of this as something historical and you record it perfectly word for word and it's supposed to be as unaltered as possible. The common criticisms that you get of Scott, which some people have revised and they think actually maybe he was more historical and honest about it than initially he was accused of being but um Mm. i think in his own introduction he did say full disclosure there are parts of this that i have modified to make them a better story in my eyes Mm. so in a way fair enough he was an author by trade that was his whole thing (laughs) because of the way our cultural repertoires work what we have are written down folktales and we don't actually know how accurately and faithfully they were written down we still have to call them folktales you know um, this is part of the problem in a way with written history we give it Mm -hmm. a lot of Faith, and we take it as it is, oftentimes. Yeah.
1: And it might not be. We just don't know. There's even stories where the person who has collected it is otherwise considered trustworthy and they have a source for the story that they've given, but because the story in question might be so strange or so unique we can't find anything like it that then brings into doubt whether the story is genuine, whether the person who recorded it can be trusted or whether it was their source that couldn't be trusted, like we don't know
0: Yeah, we don't know, we also don't know how localised some things might be, there might very much have been variants that existed in one village and that was it everyone else moved on uh, Yeah, cultures do cause... incredibly weird things sometimes that we don't have any kind of rationale for
1: yeah especially when because you kind of get two kinds of two kinds of story that are tied to a location one is the kind where the story spread all over the place and the location gets changed to make it more relevant to the people that are currently telling it and one is the kind where the story is about the place that it comes from and in that case it's not so likely to move yes it's explaining something specific
0: yes you don't have a story about a mountain being created and then live in a plateau it stays Connected to the mountain. And maybe it spreads to other cultures that have mountains and like that version of the tale more than their own. or Yeah. Whatever. How that works
1: out. So, So this story, The Water Horse of Barra, it has kind of started the process of being passed around and being retold and reshaped by different people. And, like, I think the... Like one of the, the copy of it that I read seemed to be part of like a kind of worksheet for children. Like it had the original, it had the original story as told by the author. And then at the end it had kind of some like work, work sheet type things for like kids to think about. Yeah. And again, that just kind of shows that it's being passed around and it's being retold. Um, but I think in the modern world and I'm using like the word modern very broadly, mm-hmm. um this process is just gonna be so much slower. Like we still have the original from nineteen sixty nine but in the kind of traditional sense of folklore, like without writing just word word of mouth, between now and nineteen sixty nine the story would have been passed around and changed and shaped so much by so many people for it Mm -hmm. to get to now where we still have it. Yes. But we are now in the place where we still have the exact same one that we had then. And then, so that's much slower than it would have used to have been. And then I think in the modern world, we have much more of like these ideas of like, There's one true, correct, official story told Mm. by a specific author that can't be changed by anyone. And like any changes that you make are not official and they're not really true or real. Yes. And again, that's going to slow any kind of development of modern folklore and the sharing of stories in that way. Yes, it's
0: this whole idea of uh, intellectual property
1: um yeah which doesn't
0: necessarily have to be a bad thing or at least i can understand why we have it and have to have it to a degree yeah but it also means that we're losing that flexibility um Mm. that that sense of internalizing a story in your community and making it about you and for you
1: Yeah, like I'm very glad that we have the stories written down that we do Mm. because I think it would be very sad to lose them but at the same time, as soon as they're written down they're frozen, like Mm. that's it, that's the story Um, or it becomes that way and I think folklore collecting is really important and I'm really glad that so many people have done and are doing it, Mm. but that's also a side of it
0: if you try to preserve something that's supposed to be fluid, you lose the fluidity. There's no way for you not to.
1: But, you know, sadly, we just, well, I think it's sad. We just don't really live in the kind of world where these stories can remain self-sustaining. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, we do get the appearance of folklore happening in the same way that it always has happened. Um, we do get that in the modern world, but it, like we kind of touched on before, Mm -hmm. it kind of tends to happen, like, it has to be outside the realm of traditional publishing. It has to be on, for example, internet forums. Yes. It has to be this kind of, you know, I think, I think anything that's written on the internet, we see it as kind of, um, almost like throwaway, disposable, like it's not permanent, it's not, um, it's just kind of, just something that someone said, and it's the kind of closest that you get to the kind of, way that things and ideas would form before, and, you know, it's a little bit like, like the most obvious example I could think of was the whole Slenderman phenomenon. You um, know,
0: I was thinking about the Slenderman thing as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. So like that one, it misses the generational aspect, but otherwise, like yeah, that's you can consider that folklore. Mm-hmm. Aside from the kind of, we're supposed to all know that this is invented. Um. So like, Slenderman, like the story of Slenderman, originates on the eighth of June, two thousand and nine. Two thousand
0: nine. Wow. Yeah. I thought it so, was earlier than that.
1: Yeah. So like, we can say exactly when it appeared, which is mm. like very unusual for folklore. Yes. Um, and the original poster posted a photograph with. A creature photoshopped in, which is an abnormally tall and thin humanoid with white skin, no face, sometimes kind of wearing a black suit, sometimes with like these kind of tentacle things coming from its back. Mm. And then the photo was accompanied by just kind of a short fictional description of the photograph's supposed origin. And then loads of people jumped on that and created kind of more lore and stories. And they built up the whole idea and... The lore behind it of this creature together, yeah, very much a combined thing, which functions very like folklore does. Yeah. I feel like the whole Slenderman thing, in my mind, culminates with like the Slenderman stabbing in twenty fourteen. Yes. Um. So that was on the thirty first of May, twenty fourteen, where. Um, two 12-year-old girls attempted to kill their friend in Slenderman's name, saying that they believed that he would appear to them if they did this, basically. Um, I don't want to get too much into it. I'm tempted to say if it wasn't Slenderman, it would have been something else. Um, yes. Quite but, possibly. Yeah. But it's kind of an example of how far reaching this kind of thing can be how it had really like embedded itself in the kind of popular imagination and consciousness like people, people who were on the internet and exposed to it and how it really kind of took hold of these two, two girls imaginations and like it's definitely not, I don't think they stabbed their friend because of a story but it's a kind of interesting note that it could... That something that was just kind of created could become so powerful, I guess. So impactful. I also think after that uh,
0: news story came out... Yeah. I think that you hear a lot less about Slenderman now. I think that there was some reticence to bring it back because before it had been almost a ghost story that you it was slightly funny and slightly scary and you were never quite sure how how true it it was supposed to feel like
1: yeah which is again how folklore
0: is Um, I think that's how a lot of people interact with stories about demons and angels and fairies
1: like I definitely, when I first heard about Slenderman, I didn't know where it'd come from mm. or anything. I just, it was just this kind of ghost story that everyone was talking about all of a sudden. Yeah, and yeah, it it does feel like how people have always interacted with this kind of thing. It feels like, you know, I think people they wanted to, you know, it lost its appeal when it felt like it had. had it felt like it had had this huge consequence. Mm. Um, and I guess losing interest in it when you can't kind of escape the very like real thing that happened because of it. It's no longer just imaginary harm, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like a perfectly reasonable, logical response to lose interest in it because of that. Um, yes. But it's also an interesting parallel to the way um stories about creatures from folklore have always been which is like the more you speak about them and the more you give voice to them the more power they have yeah and in a way that exact thing is what happened
0: it's almost the idea of platforming an idea
1: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah the way that no matter what you do the more focus you put on something the greater reach you give it and the more impact it will have in absolutely any sphere of life. Yeah. And I think particularly for things that are on the edge of horror and associated with violence, which Slender Man very much was, which some aspects of folk tales are some less so we're, slightly addicted to things like that some people more than others but i think we're we're all conscious of the fact that death is a part of life and violence is to a degree uh also very present and very threatening and so we tell Mm -hmm. stories about it to work through those emotions and those fears and there's some evidence that people who actively choose to engage in negative emotional experiences so like when you watch a scary film listen to a scary story whatever uh there's some suggestion that you do that because you are teaching yourself how to cope with real fear whenever that Mm -hmm. happens from a biopsychological perspective Hmm. and yeah i just think that that plays into why we tell these different stories and why we find it so important to update them and internalize them and make them relevant to us right now yeah and i think that's why why we decided it would be worth talking about this story and getting into this discussion even if maybe it's slightly above our pay grade since we haven't mm-hmm. we're not official folklorists but yeah. i think there's a danger of treating folklore like it's history and these are yeah. historical sources yeah. and they're, they're not they're a lot more muddy than that and that's why they're interesting yeah you couldn't take away the ambiguity without losing a lot of the interest
1: yeah i definitely i remember doing my my dissertation for uni um in my fourth year because my my dissertation was about um folklore and the keliak and I, I ran into I just felt really frustrated because for the folklore that I was looking at I had to find um, I had to sort of quote specific stories and find specific examples and it's like, well of, of course I do. I can't just like, I need to prove that I'm getting this from somewhere and I'm mm. not just making it up. but it's also like but there is no one version, there's no official thing, this is kind of this sort of um, quoting and sort of proving um and making it official and proving that there's one official version is kind of just the opposite of what it's about, even though mm. I know why I had to do it, it makes sense, but it's yes. not in the spirit of what folklore is, really. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I think to a degree the spirit of folklore is what you make of it and how you interact with it, both as an individual and as a culture. Um, Yeah. I think if it resonates and it's almost autonomous, Mm -hmm. generated by the community, I... think you could argue that that would be folklore and then that's a very wide definition and i can understand why we have much more narrow ones for official fields of study but i don't know i wonder if it's reductionist and slightly unfair
1: the thing about folklore is that it has a life of its own that's outside mm-hmm. of any one creator yes and that's kind of what that's kind of what for me kind of validates it um you know it's, it's very flexible like I don't want to you know I think that's the line for me when I'm like feeling like why do I feel like this is not folklore and why does do I feel like this other thing is folklore yeah um I think it's about it it's about it having that kind of life of its own and about there being no no one person who decides what is and isn't about it
0: yes it's about the shared creation and transmission of this story
1: thank you for listening to the folklore scotland
0: podcast we'll be back every single week with new folklore content from stories to analysis so stay tuned
1: Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today.
0: If you would like to find out more about our charity, visit folklorescotland.com and if you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a link to a written version of this week's story in the show notes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.